0: Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us, and whether you call Collective your church home or you are just checking us out, we hope you are encouraged and inspired to take the next step in your journey toward the grace and truth of Jesus. For more information about Collective, you can visit us online at mycollective.church or follow us on social media at mycollectivechurch. Now, let's get into today's message. $20 million. $20 million. Million dollars. I'm going to say it again, just so you know, $20 million. That's how much money I asked for to be the guest speaker today, but they said no. But I think you can imagine that much money can get you a lot of things. Maybe you're starting to think about the things in your life. I know for us, we have been house searching for the past six or seven months, and we are not your typical HGTV couple. Hi, we're the Thompsons, and we're looking for our dream home in Frederick, Maryland. I fix bicycles and work at Petzl Pizza downtown, and I'm the full-time stay-at-home parent. And our budget is six hundred thousand dollars. But if it's perfect, we'll go up to kaching, kaching, kaching for the right house. No, that's not us. Like, where are those unicorns, and how do they live in that life? Just six days ago, my wife and I sat down, and we had a very hard conversation. We found a house that we loved. Our hearts said yes. Our heads, the numbers, and our FPU training said no. FPU, Financial Peace University, starts one week from tomorrow, 630. We would love to have you join us, implement wise financial decisions into your life, and take back control over your finances. But I will warn you, FPU is not easy. We are the teachers of the course, and we struggled because we found a house that we loved, and we wanted to buy this thing. But we looked into the numbers, and the numbers just didn't make sense, and it didn't fit. I'd love to spend a little slice of that $20 million on a house. And if you're thinking about your list, I'll share as far as I've gotten with mine. I want a Jeep Wrangler. I want a two-door, none of this new four-door stuff. Give me the OG version. I want burnt orange. I want to take the whole entire shell off, put some big tires on that thing, put on my white flip-flops, and feel the wind blow through my hair. Like, that is a great day. And as a professor, I want to spend my Christmas break and my summer break in Masai Mara, Kenya, and I want to be a safari cruise driver, taking in sunsets and then laying underneath the stars at night. I would say you haven't fully enjoyed a sunset unless you've been in that East African savanna, the bright blue sky, the sun melting into the golden savanna before you with those famous acacia trees dotting the horizon. That is beautiful. But let's get back to reality here. This is Frederick. We're not in Masai Mara. So what if I told you $20 million brought you this little nugget of wisdom. Happiness is love. It's kind of a letdown, if you ask me. I mean, that's pretty disappointing. But there is a grant study that is done by the Harvard Medical School, and nerdy academic people like me geek out over this kind of stuff. It's called a longitudinal study. They take the same group of people and study them over a long period of time. And in this case, for over 75 years, they've been looking at the lives of Harvard sophomores from the years of 1938 to 1944. And at that time, Harvard was still an all-male institution, so only males were a part of the original study. And they wanted to determine what attributes and life circumstances lead to both health and happy lives. And $20 million later, they said, happiness is love. That sounds great. And it came out of the Great Depression, which is a great thing to study, coming out of the Great Depression. But like, come on, you're Harvard. This is one of the finest higher educational institutions in the world. You're supposed to impress us with all these big words that we don't understand and your intelligence. I mean, come on, give out tassels at graduation, not Mickey Mouse ears. When did you turn into Disney? And $20 million, if you're like me, sounds like a really big waste because of how simple that message is. But I think that we all know just because something sounds simple and is easy to say doesn't mean it's easy to live out in our own lives. Here's a really practical example. Eat your vegetables. That's easy to say, but have you ever had cauliflower before? That stuff is disgusting. I don't want to eat cauliflower. Maybe you hear this and you're not just disappointed. Maybe it makes you angry and it makes you mad. Like, $20 $20 million, I can think of so many better ways to spend $20 million. So getting real in your life and in my life, how do we take things when, when things make us mad, when things make us frustrated, how do we deal with that? If you have kids, have they ever come home from daycare or school with a new choice word that makes your head turn, and what was that that you just said? I can attest that's a frustrating experience. Or has somebody ever sat you down and respectfully had a conversation with you because you are in the wrong? And deep down inside, you know this conversation needs to happen, but because of pride and ego, you snap back. That's a hard conversation to have, and it frustrates us in the moment. I say it like this. Your best friends stab you in the front. And sometimes that means sitting you down and having a conversation that you don't like and that might be uncomfortable. And this is what is happening today in our story. This is a conversation that occurs between God and Jonah. And so here's a really quick recap. If you haven't been with us in this series, God was like, hey, Jonah, you are my man. Go to Nineveh, save my people. And Jonah's like, ha-ha, nope, peace out, see ya. So he goes this way on a ship, big storm, gets thrown over, fish swallows him, three days in the fish, he finds redemption. God saves him Goes to Nineveh, preaches like he's supposed to. The people of Nineveh repent, and God doesn't bring a storm, a calamity, destroy them like he had said he would. And this is where we pick up the story. And Jonah is really frustrated, and Jonah is really mad at God. This is Jonah 4, verses 1 through 3. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That's why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful compassionate God, slow to get angry, filled with unfailing love, eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted isn't going to happen. Now what Jonah is referring to, again, is the Ninevites turning from their sin. Sin is what separated them from God. They would made their own choices that separated them from God. And Jonah preached about this, and their response from the king all the way down was everybody in the city was to repent back to God. And because of this repentance, God saw their heart and turned away from his anger and did not destroy the city. I think it's really important, though, to be aware of why Jonah is angry. He knows that God's unfailing love is going to win the day. And one thing that I love about Jonah is you get to see a real glimpse into human thoughts and emotions. This takes this from some book that's written thousands and thousands of years ago to, wow, I really connect with this. And keep in mind, Jonah is a professional Christian. Like, Jonah works for God, and still he has these thoughts that I can identify with. Jonah's kind of telling God, hey, listen, man, I'm drawing a line in the sand right now. I hate those people, the Ninevites, so much. God, it's either me or them, but it's not going to be both of us. You're going to have to choose because I don't like them. I want you, but I don't want them with you. Jonah one of God's main guys wanted the Ninevites to die. He wished that they would get what their actions portrayed. He didn't want good things to come to them. And if you can't connect with that, don't look at the disease, look at the symptom. The symptom is hate in Jonah's heart toward a group of people. For us, it can materialize in a lot of different ways. You have an argument with your spouse, boyfriend or girlfriend, and you know, you know that forgiveness needs to happen, but you're not going to be the one to do it first. That one kid at school who always says mean things about you, and you wish you could respond, but you're nice, so you don't, but instead, your head, you have this conversation of how it would go if you did actually respond... Maybe you know somebody who doesn't know God anymore. They used to do this whole church thing, and now they don't, and you kind of have to hide your smug grin because it makes you feel good inside. Hate is hate, and you at least got to give Jonah credit for being so honest about his, especially when he's saying all this to God. And with hate, it's both intent and impact that matter. I could go do a bunch of really stupid stuff, and the impact goes far beyond me. Or I can just think and feel in my heart a bunch of really stupid stuff. And the the intent stays within me, but intent and impact are both the same. Jumping back into the story, if you are not convinced yet that Jonah is just like us, I think verse 5 has your name written all over it. Check this out. Jonah went to the east side of the city and made a shelter to sit under As he waited to see what would happen in the city. I personally love this verse. This is one of my favorite verses in the whole entire book of Jonah. What's going to happen? Come on, God. You can change your mind. I know you want to. This is that classic Jim Carrey, Dumb and Dumber quote. So you're saying there's a chance. No, there is no chance. Jonah already admitted. He knows God is merciful, compassionate, full of unfailing love. But there's that quiet little voice inside stirring within him. Come on, God. Send some hail. Burn it all down. Just one little earthquake, God. And maybe if that's a little too intense, you're like, whoa, I'm not a bad person. I'm not wishing any death wishes on anybody. Maybe you just high-five your coworker when that one certain person doesn't get the promotion. (laughs) That dude lost his job, good. He was a moron anyways, didn't deserve it in the first place. Listen, I don't want anybody to have a major emergency. God, just give them a prolonged illness to cause some stress. God, I want my ex to date somebody so what happened to me can happen to them. God, seriously, just throw a little bit of pain their way so I can enjoy watching them squirm. This is where Jonah is. He's waiting for something that he admitted he already knows is not going to happen, and that's where we pick up in verse 6. The Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow, and soon it spreaded broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. And this eased his discomfort, and Jonah was very grateful for the plant. All right, God, thank you. Finally, something that I can say my hat on. It's about time you did something for me. Me, me, me. A whole entire city of 120,000 people were just saved. They just repented. Think about what happened with and Jonah in the belly of the fish. He calls out to God in his time of trouble, and God saves him. This city with 120,000 people call out to God in their time of trouble, and God saved them. It's something that only God can choose to do, and God did choose to do this for the Ninevites. This is a city the size of Hartford, Connecticut. God just saved Hartford. And what's crazy here is this is a major reason to rejoice. When one person gets baptized here, we go crazy for that person. And when you think about the numbers of 120,000 people, it's a little bit mind-boggling. But instead of rejoicing over that, Jonah is finally happy that God has done something for him. But maybe you know the story. If you don't, the plant doesn't last as we're about ready to see. Verses 7 through 9 are going to be up on the screen. I'm going to kind of move through them here pretty quickly. God calls for a worm. The next morning, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withers away. The sun grows hot. Scorching wind blows. Jonah feels so hot that he is about to faint and wished he could die. And he says, death is better than living like this. And then God talks to him. They have an interaction. God's like, hey, is it right for you to be angry about this plant? And Jonah's actually like, yeah, it is, dude. It's right for me to be angry about this, so angry that I wish I could die. Now, first of all, the point of this plant coming and going away is God is showing Jonah who is in control of Jonah's destiny and also the Ninevites as well. So the worm comes, and it takes away the shade, and Jonah is so hot that he is close to overheating physically. But also mentally, he's back in this position where he was, in the belly of the whale, where he's starting to think about, I wish I was dead again. And this is a little bit of a harsh transition, but as we'll see in a few minutes, there's not really much left to the story. There's no fairy tale ending. It almost ends just like it is. And if you're here for the first time, or if you've heard the whole entire series so far, maybe you're thinking well, how do I make sense of this? This doesn't really sound like some of the other love stories that I've heard in the Bible. What am I supposed to take away from this? I think the first thing that's really important to make note of here is that God is big enough to handle your wrath. For all of us in the room today, no matter what our spiritual beliefs are, I think it is really cool how open and honest the Bible is about somebody A religious guy being angry at God. And it's not just Jonah. This is a theme that portrays throughout the Bible with a lot of people who love God. Most of the book of Psalms was written by one person, and this one person, his name is David. He's known as a man after God's own heart. And David has similar themes in his conversations with God as well. Psalms 13, God, how long are you going to forget me? How long is my sorrow going to last? Psalm 6, God, my soul is in deep anguish. Psalms 10, God, why are you so far off? Psalm 44, wake up, bro. Why are you forgetting my misery? Psalms 89, where's your great love, God? I've heard about it. I've felt it. But in this moment, it's just gone, and I don't know where you are. If you're mad at God, you can totally be mad at God. You can tell him that you're mad at God. I have before. I've yelled at God before. You can go blow to blow with God. God's big enough to handle your raw honesty, and I would say he wants that much more than some prayer filled with words that you don't actually mean. If God made the universe, he can handle you and me yelling at him from time to time. And there's a difference between blame and emotion, but we don't have time to get into that, but you can and you should Take your raw emotions to God. Don't let anybody tell you it's not okay to be angry with God. One of his own people very clearly is. The next application point, and I'll just tell you, this is a little bit hard to hear and learn. You can obey even if you hate what God is asking you to do. That's a hard lesson. We already know how Jonah felt about the people in Nineveh. And what's really interesting is when you go back and you look at what Jonah preached specifically to them, he preaches death and he preaches destruction. And then he sits and waits for it all to start happening. But those very same things, unfailing love and mercy and grace, those endless second chances that Jonah just received in the belly of the fish, he conveniently leaves out for this group of people he doesn't like. God, thank you for giving me that mercy and grace. That was so great. You're awesome. I love you, but I don't like those people, so I'm going to leave that part out. He's very reluctant to obey, but Jonah still obeys. And this is a comfort thing. We don't like getting outside of our bubble, of our comfort zone. It makes us feel weird. We don't know what to do. I'll just give you a hint. If you follow God long enough, he's going to ask you to get outside of your comfort zone. It happens. And for us, me and my wife, Rachel, it happened when we are trying to decide whether to move here to Frederick or not. I was in Ohio for my doctoral program, and we knew that time was coming to a close, and it pretty quickly came down to Frederick or Johnson City, Tennessee. I loved Johnson City, and it became my home, my people, my culture. I had the inside track on a tenure track position in the communication department at my former institution from undergrad, but beyond that, I just really love Appalachian life. I love it. And I remember, still to this day, I remember the first time I became true East Tennessee material. I wasn't born there. I was a transplant. But I went to church with this girl named Lena. And first of all, you would say Lena, but it's Lena. So I went to church with Lena, and she was telling me all about this boy that she had started dating, how much he loved God. And she was smiling and gigging on cloud nine. And my response was, did your ma take to him real good? And I stopped, and I was like, what just came out of my mouth? What is happening? And that's the first time that I realized that, like, me and East Tennessee, we're not dating anymore. This is a serious relationship between the two of us. And listen, we're cool. I like it here. We actually, we love Frederick. But if you want to see a whole other side of me, first of all, I need more y'alls and a whole lot more ain'ts coming out of y'all's mouths. All right? (laughs) I need accents that are so thick, you need me to translate what is being said for you. Don't need to get the oil changed in my car, get them tires rotated, get out my pan and start taking notes on this here sermon. And yes, pan is a two-syllable word, just to let you know. Serve me up a little bit of grease for my side of bacon, please. And them teeth y'all got, don't brush them, just lose a little bit of them, make them feel better. Now listen, we're saying this in jest and it's in fun, but if you want to see a whole nother side of me and a real heavy accent come out, just cross that state line with me down into Tennessee. I was gonna live, work, and retire right there. But then I done went and hitched my wagon which means I got married to a Maryland girl and became best friends with this guy named Michael Bartlett, who is the lead pastor of our church. And so all of a sudden, we have a decision to make. Is this something that's comfortable, familiar, that I love, that's easy, or someplace called Frederick? I didn't know anybody. Didn't have a job, didn't have any prospects of a job. (laughs) And, oh, by the way, God, have you seen those house prices? That's insane. You better quadruple my salary that I'm not getting as a student to be able to afford to live in that place. But God said go, and we did, and here we are. God showed up in ways that I didn't even know I needed him to show up in. Sometimes it's not easy. But maybe God's asking you to get outside of your comfort zone. Our third application point is this, and if you don't take away anything, I really want you to understand this: God's grace and mercy are not contingent on how we feel about the people in our life. His endless second chances that He gives, not contingent on how we feel about the people in our life. God asks us to forgive and pray. For the people in our life who we don't like, who have hurt us, and who betray us. When we see Jonah's anger, it's very simple to say that he prioritized himself. And God, as long as you give me shade and we're cool and I get what I want and I'm comfortable, then that's great. But as soon as that shade goes away and things get uncomfortable and life gets hard, I start to focus on those people again and how much I hate those people. And God, you better choose one or the other. Let me ask you something all of us in the room today who is it if they walk through those doors right now would make you want to get up and leave you know the feeling the room gets a little bit hot all of a sudden blood rushes to or away from your cheeks your lips purse tight you stare a hole right through whatever's in front of you that you're looking at who's that person Somebody who did you wrong, introduced you to a habit that you can't kick, a lifestyle that you wish you could kick but you can't. Hey, maybe they did nothing to you. Walk all over me, man. That's cool. That's great. But you mess with the people I love, then you better watch out because I'm coming fierce. I think it's really simple to say who lives in your Nineveh. What's your relationship with the people in your Nineveh? Those people who, if God was willing to burn it all down, you'd want a front row seat to watch. Going back to that grant study that we talked about in the beginning, the study became so big and so large and well-funded that they went back and included the participants' children in the study. Some became doctors and lawyers, some ended up with mental health struggles or substance abuse addictions for their entire lives, and they were trying to figure out what is the common cause of all of these things. And Robert Waldinger, the current director of the study, said, taking care of your body is important, I think we all know that, but tending to your relationships is the revelation. The closer the relationships, the more that relationship matters, more than money or fame or prestige as a determinant of a joyful life. Ain't that something? Those close relationships, the people who can and who do hurt you the most, those are the ones where science is proving what the Bible teaches, where we need grace and mercy and unending love the most. (laughs) Haha, <laughs> you're thinking I'm off the hook. I don't have any problems with the people that are close in my life. It's just those second tier morons, and they don't matter anyways because I don't actually care about them. See you next time, Preacher Dude. The guy who was in charge of the study for the previous 30 years summed up the study relationships, relationships, relationships. Loneliness kills. Looking back at the story with Jonah, it's not a fairy tale. We do not know how the story ends. Jonah could have, over time, developed trust and a great relationship with the people in the city of Nineveh. Jonah could have died out in the desert immediately after the story ends. We don't know what the outcome is. The story's over. It's been written. He put the pen down and closed the book, and that's it. Who makes fun of you? Who makes you feel small, like you don't matter? Who takes advantage of you? Who's making you squirm a little bit right now because that person is being recalled in your mind? You may hate this, but God would love nothing more, nothing more, maybe even through you, for that person to come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Who do you make fun of? Who do you make feel small, insignificant? Who do you take advantage of? Who's causing anxiety right now because that person and their name and their face is coming to mind? I have good news. The grace and forgiveness that Jesus offers the people in our lives that we don't like, he offers to us as well. And there's always room for one more at God's dinner table, and it's a great place to be. So whether you are in need of mercy and grace or forgiveness or you need to give those second chances to other people, God's there. He's ready and he's waiting. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for today. We thank you for the gift and the promise that is grace and mercy, endless second chances unfailing love. We thank you that you give that to each and every one of us. And I pray that we are courageous enough to offer and extend that to the people in our lives where it's needed most. In your son's name, amen.